Hey, my name is Cindra Kampoff, and I'm a small town Minnesota gal, Minnesota nice as we like to say it, who followed her big dreams. I spent the last four years working as a mental coach for the Minnesota Vikings, working one-on-one -on -one with the players. I wrote a best-selling book about the mindset of the world's best, and I'm a keynote speaker and national leader in the field of sport and performance psychology. And I am obsessed with showing you exactly how to develop the mindset of the world's best so you can accomplish all your goals and dreams. So I'm over here following my big dreams and I'm here to inspire you and practically show you how to do the same. And you know, when I'm not working, you'll find me playing Miss Pac-Man. Yes, the 1980s game, Miss Pac-Man. So take your notepad out, buckle up, and let's go. This is the High Performance Mindset. Robin Schwarma once said, the more time you spend in your discomfort zone, the more your comfort zone will expand. Brooke Costillo said, discomfort is the currency of your dreams. And today I have Pete Kadushin on the podcast who said this, failure is the thing that activates your growth. Welcome to the High Performance Mindset Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Sandra Kampoff, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm so grateful that you're here, ready to listen to an episode with Dr. Pete Kadushin. Today, we are talking about choosing the uncomfortable on purpose. And Pete has worked with a wide variety of high performers, including athletes, first responders, military units, and performing artists. Prior to his current role as the mental performance coach for the Chicago Blackhawks, he held academic positions at both Western Colorado University and Boston University. And in line with his goal of being a lifelong learner, he started the Mental Training Lab podcast in order to have fun conversations with brilliant people in the field of performance psychology. At the core of it all, Pete's purpose on this planet is to help people learn the mindsets and mental skills that empower them to live a life of deep meaning and to enable them to take good care of themselves and others along the way. In this episode, Pete and I talk about the importance of being uncomfortable on purpose and what actually that means and how to do so. We talk about the purpose of suffering, how failure is the thing that activates growth, different ways to have grace under fire, and how to start your own suffer club. Now, not supper club, suffer club. If you enjoyed this podcast episode today, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. Just scroll up wherever you're listening on your phone, for example, and you can leave us a rating and a review there. This helps us reach more and more people each and every week. So thank you so much for doing that. And if you'd like the full show notes, as well as the transcript of the interview, you can head over to syndracampoff.com slash 464 for episode 464. All right, without further ado, let's bring on Pete. Pete, I am so excited to uh, be on the podcast with you. Thank you so much for joining me on the High Performance Mindset today. How are you? Uh, I'm really excited to be here. I've been a big fan of your podcast for years now. And so the opportunity to sit down and, and talk shop with you is uh, the highlight of my day. Thank you. I know 2015, we've had this podcast, which is pretty crazy. Sometimes when I speak and I say, hey, um, if you'd like to listen to the episode, it's episode 420 and people's mind kind of, you know, it's blown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, but Pete, I'm excited to talk with you and I know our conversation is going to be incredible. So I think we should just dive in and to get us started, tell us what you're most passionate about. I mean, other than talking shop with people like you, uh, it's it's getting a chance to to do the work. Uh, and for me, 
performance psychology is really about empowering and enabling people to make meaning at the highest level possible uh, and as consistently as possible. And so it's about uh, helping people understand what that meaning is. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that could be uh, sport and performance. It could be serving others for the tactical populations that I've worked with. It could be uh, helping people within the context of business. But it's really about finding the, the system that you use to make meaning and then building the skills so that you can do that as often as possible and as well as you, you can with the, the genetic gifts that you were given. And so uh, the opportunity to understand what's going on in between somebody's mind and then help them uh, get closer to what they want to do, that's, that's the magic. It is the magic. And I, uh, it's such an honor when people let us into their own minds. And, you know, it's just a privilege to work with people to really help them be the best them that they can be and follow what their goals are. So it is a really cool job, isn't it? Oh, it's the best. Yeah. I wouldn't be doing anything else and want to be doing anything else. This is, this is it. Um, so tell us, Pete, how you got to where you are right now, because I think it, uh, your journey has been really fascinating and you've had a lot of different opportunities to work with different various populations. So tell us a bit about that. I'll, uh, I'll go broad strokes. And then if there's anything that we want to dive directly into, uh, be happy to loop back around. Uh, mm -hmm. I got into sports psychology because I was a head case as a wrestler. Uh, wrestling was like my primary performance domain as a high schooler. Uh, so I did what any good nerdy young man would do. And I went to Barnes and Noble and got a book on sports psych. Uh, awesome. I went to Penn state and I did some psychology or majored in psychology, minored in exercise science, and then found my way to West Virginia university, uh, where I did a master's in counseling and a PhD in sport and exercise psych. And I had a bunch of really diverse experiences there, which I think set me up for the unusual and adventurous path that I've been on. Uh, I came in wanting to like work with the highest level performers possible, uh, you know, Olympics, right. That's the, the rallying cry. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I finished my career at WVU working in a weight management program, serving state employees who were overweight and obese with uh, behavior change. So physical activity, nutrition, stress management, uh, and seeing sort of the exercise psychology side of it and the, the outside of sport context in which all of the skills and tools that we, we can teach, uh, how that could make an impact that was ended up being a really important developmental touchstone for me. Uh, after that, I went and I taught for four and a half years at a tiny little university, uh, Western Colorado University up in the mountains of Colorado. Uh, and I was teaching sports site classes, motor development, motor learning, uh, and every course, even when it was outside of my competency, ended up coming back around to really be a meaningful piece of the puzzle as I continue to grow as a practitioner and as a, as a performer myself. After that, I went to Boston University and I taught in their counseling master's program with a specialization in sports psych for a couple of years uh, and the opportunity to work with master's students who were doing the work and then being able to supervise and really kind of be in the trenches with them, but with, uh, with some perspective that you don't get when you're doing the work yourself uh, was really a cool opportunity. And then to watch the, the light bulbs go on for the students as they were getting into the work was really magical. Uh, after that, I... I left BU. It coincided just about with the start of the pandemic. And so I spent the pandemic um, quarantine style trying to build, a, or excuse me, not trying to, I was building a business, which included uh, uh, you know, Zoom-based uh, performance coaching and then uh, built a, 
uh, podcast to go with it because I love having conversations like this. Uh, and then about three and a half months ago, I was hired as the mental performance coach for the Chicago Blackhawks. And so uh, I've kind of, I wouldn't say meandered. I've, uh, I've taken a lot of different interesting paths. And uh, I think that when I zoom out, it's kind of like those mosaics where all the little tiny pictures, uh, when you pull out, you, you see the, the grander picture. Uh, they've all been purposeful. It just sometimes I didn't realize it. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing with us your journey. I, I, I remember hearing about that waste, weight loss program at WVU, I think at our, our sports psychology conference. And I thought it was really intriguing. And I think sometimes when we're working with sort of non-athletes, it really teaches us the importance of these skills for the everyday population, you know, um, and how they really do apply to all of us. And, and, and really cool that you started your business during the pandemic. That's not something I, I, um, you know, knew. And, uh, I thought, wow, your web website is awesome for just getting it started, <laughs> you know, a year and a half ago. <laughs> what was that like? Uh, working in starting a business during the pandemic when a lot of um, maybe things were shut down? It was the right challenge for the moment. Mm. Uh, I think that one of the things that was really beneficial is that Zoom wasn't part of our language, uh, at least the the common culture, you know, three or four years ago. And yeah. now if you ask somebody to hop on a, a Zoom call or Microsoft Teams or whatever, uh, that's just, there's really not a whole lot of barrier there. And so it opened up a, a world that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise in terms of being able to connect with people and do the work. And I think there's something that's lost and something that's gained. It's always about trade-offs. Mm -hmm. And so I love being in the presence of another. I think the body language and the energetics you get when you're with someone and doing the work, uh, there's not a substitute for that, right? But the reach and the ability to connect with people when they couldn't have connected with me otherwise, I think was really a, an exciting piece of the puzzle. Uh, in terms yeah. of- I think the other, I guess the upside of doing this when everything was shut down was that there was a lot of space in my schedule that wouldn't have otherwise been there. Uh, and yeah. so essentially going back to school. So I went through Seth Godin's Alt-MBA program at the beginning of uh, this year. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading and doing a lot of work around trying to figure out how to align marketing and business planning with uh, my core value set so that it felt authentic when I was connecting with clients or potential clients. I never really wanted to sell somebody on something. I wanted it to be the right fit. And when we found that right fit, uh, the work unfolded much more organically. And so uh, it was, it was kind of like getting a crash course in business and website development and all of that. But uh, one of my favorite things to do was learn. And so it was a, it was a great opportunity, although a challenging opportunity. Yeah. And now for the last three and a half years, I've been with the Black or months, really, it seems like years, huh? <laughs> You've been with the Blackhawks. Tell us about that transition and a little bit more about that position so people can kind of get a frame as we kind of dive into some of these performance psychology topics. Yeah. So the, uh, the way that the position's been conceptualized uh, was pretty exciting. So I'm full-time embedded with the, the Blackhawks themselves. And so um, at practice, uh, um, our office is in the, the practice facility. And so uh, we're really, in terms of proximity, integrated into the team in a meaningful way. And then uh, at games, uh, traveling with the team. And so really getting an opportunity to see the demands up close and personal of not just playing a hockey game, but also 
really having the opportunity to understand what's going on and all the demands in between. And it's something that I don't think, uh, at least when I was watching sport, but not a pro sport, but not mm-hmm. a part of, you don't really understand all of the extra demand that goes along with it. Um, especially yeah. within the context of, you know, I said it back in the pandemic, but we're still moving through uh, pieces mm-hmm. of that. Uh, so, you know, the exciting thing for me is that when I was hired, I was also hired with a uh, another gentleman, also another WVU alumni, uh, alumnus, there we go, uh, AJ Sturgis, and he's uh, responsible for the, the mental health for the organization. And so uh, they found it important enough to bring in two separate people, one to do the focus of the off-ice work, and then one to focus on the on-ice performance. And I think uh, that's, a, for me, a pretty important shift, whereas I know other places, they, they try and do everything with one person in-house. And I think uh, there's some drawbacks to that. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. And for an organization, a pro sport organization to see the value of, of two full-time people and cool that you have very similar training. So I know that we're going to dive into, um, you know, hockey, but first I just was curious, what do you think the high performance mindset really is? And what does it mean to you? Let's go there first. It's a great question. And I think that the asterisk up front is that it looks a lot of different ways, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the performer. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of, uh, there's some commonalities that we can point to when we look at people who are at the peak of their craft. Uh, And so I think that the first is that there's uh, systems in place for uh, consistent growth. And so for me, it's about, you know, when we think about systems, there's kind of a couple different components. There's designing an environment that encourages it. And then there's the patterns of action and patterns of thought that support it, right? So our habits Mm -hmm. around what it looks like to grow consistently every single day. Mm -hmm. I think that the hallmark of a high performer is that they weren't always a high performer, but they've gotten a little bit better every single day at their, their chosen craft. And I think cooked into that is ability to identify sort of the next like little tiny horizon that you need to step towards, right? So really setting small process-oriented goals, but doing it relentlessly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then feeding that into the next part of the system so that tomorrow I take what I learned today and I can step on that as I continue to get a little bit closer to that goal. Once I hit that goal, I have the opportunity to pick the next meaningful step. And so there's that whole system that I think, uh, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Some people journal after every practice. Some people are really good at setting goals before every practice or setting intentions, uh, but having that in place and not leaving it up to chance. I think that's what I've seen across all of the different high performers I've had the opportunity to cross paths with. Yeah. Uh, and then I think the, the second piece, so if that's like the one, the, the sort of the practice growth side, then when it comes to performance, it's the ability to be deeply embodied in the present moment with a task focus. Yeah. That is so powerful, but so difficult. (laughs) I think especially in sport where um, there's a lot riding on the outcome and, or in business when there's a lot riding on the outcome, if it's a a sale or, you know, a close, whatever that might be. Um, But I completely agree, right. That, that deeply, um, being focused in the in the present, focused on the the task or the process, is is what high performance is a, a really important key to high performance. 
I just want to hop in and say that I think the one of the challenges because pressure is is real, right? Mm-hmm. There are stakes, and sometimes those stakes are imagined or we've invested more in them than it's not actually life or death. It just feels life or death. Uh, but for some athletes and for certainly some performers, right, the tactical or first responder populations, it could be life or death. It could uh, be. And mm-hmm. so I think acknowledging, and this is a, one of my fundamental beliefs is that we need to start with what reality is and mm-hmm. then move forward from there uh, mm-hmm. and being able to be really grounded in that reality and honest with what it is. And so, uh, you know, if you're getting ready to go play the Super Bowl, I don't think it's particularly effective to go. It's just any other game. Yeah. Right. Like your body and your mind know that it's the Super Bowl. And when you go like, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. uh, Right. You go like, but it is a big deal. And I care deeply about the outcome. I'm attached deeply to one of these outcomes. And I'm very upset if the other one happens. Mm -hmm. And so starting there and saying, okay, if that's all true, and it is because it's there, then what do I do with it? Now, how can I work with the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations in my body in a meaningful way to still get to ready? to still be able to hit the field when the, that first kickoff is going to occur and know that my body and my mind are in a space where I can perform my best. I think that's the task. And so it's not denying the reality and it's not denying the stakes. It's using them in a meaningful way. Yeah. It makes me think of um, the summer I did some work with the United States track and field team when they were over in Tokyo and uh, you can't deny it's the Olympics. You know, I, I, I actually think you have to acknowledge that it's the Olympic games and there's lots of different things because it's the Olympics and how are you going to manage that, but also be your best. And, um, you know, to me, that's why you have these different mindset tools that you can use and utilize um, on those, you know, the, the times where you want to really be your best. So I'm curious, Pete, when you think about hockey, um, and I've done some work with hockey uh, players and, and teams, but not at the pro level and not in embedded in a team like you are. Give us a sense of like, what do you think is specific to hockey related to the mental game or mental skills? I think uh, when I'm starting to really try and climb inside the demands of a sport, I really mm-hmm. want to pay attention to just that. What is an athlete being asked to do or respond to or what demands do they need to meet? And then I think about it within the context of rhythm. And so what is the rhythm of those demands? What's the, the undulation of when I need to be locked in and focused and when can I sort of let that focus go a little bit, recover mm-hmm. within the context of a game? And I think mm-hmm. what makes hockey unique is that there's a very clear undulation to that on ice during your shift, 30 to 35 seconds, hit it. And you're going hard for all 30 or 35 seconds. And then you're yeah. back on the bench. Yeah. And then what do you, what do you do with that time when you are not in the game to prepare yourself for when you get back out there, right? which is a very different rhythm from somebody who's distance running, which is a very different rhythm from somebody who's playing a basketball game. Right. And so understanding the rhythm of the demand for me is, is one of the ways that I conceptualize a lot of this. Uh, and I think hockey is unique because of that intensity. It's a hundred miles an hour and then stop. And then a yeah. hundred miles an hour and then stop. And being really purposeful with the gaps, the space between, mm-hmm. I think enables you then to, to go and get it for that 30 or 35 seconds uh, at a high level. Uh, and then be better prepared to do that throughout the course of a uh, three periods. 
Yeah, that's really fascinating to think about. And uh, I also think the emotional control piece is a piece of hockey that I think can really get the best of athletes because um, of the ways that you have to just be so all in <laughs> in 30 seconds. So how how could you give us a sense of like, what are some of the things that you see, you know, top athletes do at the pro level, uh, let's say when they're on the bench and they're, you know, to be able to transition to really all out and then taking a, a t- some time space back and just resting a little bit with their mind or focus. I actually, I learned a really important lesson from a strange place. I was caddying when I was 14 and uh, big tournament, but you know, club tournament. And uh, one of the guys, his son was with us uh, for the tournament and he, he was a cyclist and he sat down on a tee box and then like basically just lounged for two minutes while we had to wait for the people to clear the fairway. I looked at him and I, I'd known him now for two days. And so I felt comfortable being like, oh, wow, that tired. And he said, don't run when you can walk. Don't walk when you can sit. Nice. And it's something that stuck with me ever mm-hmm. since, because it was this idea that there was an opportunity to conserve energy mm-hmm. uh, and being able to do that was actually not going to take him further away from task completion, being able to focus, right? but instead was something that was actually going to give him the energy to then attack it a little bit harder. And I think one of the fears of the athlete who's close to elite, (laughs) but quite hasn't quite broken through is that they have all these tools and they've started to think they're working with a mental performance coach and they go, okay, well, I got to find my sweet spot, but I got to get my focus to the right spot. I have to get my activation and my, uh, my physicality to that right spot. But then I get like worried that if I don't keep it there, right, that I'm somehow going to lose it. It's kind of how like worrying that you're, oh, am I in flow now? As soon as you start worrying about whether you're in flow, you're out of flow. Yeah, that's true. And so I think that there's a comfort and some of it just comes down to a competence, right? You've done it enough at the highest level that when you have the opportunity to hop onto the bench, that you're thinking about taking charge of your breathing right out of the gate. So how fast when I'm in a full anaerobic mode where my heart rate is up at like 175 or 180, How fast can I get my mouth closed? How fast can I bias the exhale so that I'm really working on activating my parasympathetic nervous system? And then what am I doing with my attention as I'm manipulating my nervous system? Because our eyes help drive that activation. And so if I can actually let go a little bit with my eyes, if I can go a little bit unfocused or get really broad with my attention and not be on something specific, I can actually facilitate that recovery. And then- Mm -hmm knowing the rhythm of, okay, well, it's almost time for me to hit the ice again. What am I doing then to tighten that back up? How am I starting to ramp my nervous system up by maybe uh, shifting to more powerful inhales? And then how am I starting to pull that focus tight? So I might plug back into what's happening on the ice. Uh, And I think in general, athletes, uh, uh, hockey players are aware of what's happening, right? But then really starting to pull into the details and really starting to get their eyes activated again in a way that's going to allow them to track the play meaningfully when they hit the ice. Mm -hmm. But I think this generalizes to any performer. It's just what's the rhythm of the demands? And then where can Mm -hmm. I find those gaps? Is it timeouts during basketball? Is it when I'm playing soccer? Is it when the ball's on the other side of the pitch and I don't have to necessarily run quite as much? How can I limit how much I have to spend now so that I have more to spend later? And then build the trust that I'm going to be able to get to ready, even if I'm willing to allow that to sort of open up and relax a little bit. 
it makes me think of um, your four core mental skills. And I'm like, I just heard in your response, many of those, like the energy management, mindfulness, strategic evaluation, and systematic discomfort. Um, I thought those four together were really fascinating. So I want to ask you about those specifically, but give us a sense on why you chose those four as your core mental skills. I think I wanted to find a way to keep things simple. And the challenge is that you don't want to oversimplify something, but I think that coming from an academic background, uh, it's really easy to make things more complicated just because it feels good. Right. The more boxes and arrows I can draw on the whiteboard, the more I'm doing, as opposed to sometimes it's sharing a cliche and then saying, here's what that looks like in action. And yeah. then that's all the athlete needs. Right. Cliches are cliches for a reason because they, they often work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I tried to distill down and I, you know, part of the business development process was like really trying to clarify after a bunch of years in the field what it is I actually believed, how do I think that the work works? How do athletes Mm -hmm. reach that level? Uh, And then maintain that capacity to perform at that high level. And so I ended up with feeling pretty good if we couldn't hit anything else. And there's certainly some supplemental skills that I think are really, really important, right? But those were more tools as opposed to foundational cornerstones of peak performance. And so for me, these four were the ones that uh, everything was built on top of. Yeah, it, it is difficult. I think when you've spent so many years in the field to ask yourself, like, what do I believe? <laughs> you know, And it's hard when you're just starting because, uh, you know, you're maybe questioning yourself, but it's like after you've read so much, it's like, what what is, you know, at, at the core of this? So that's cool that you've recently gone through that process. So I heard like the mindfulness part and the answer and then the energy management piece and that answer, you know, in between the kind of breaks in the hockey game, but I'm curious about the systematic discomfort. And uh, I know you said something before we hit record about kind of smiling through the discomfort. Tell us about your thoughts on that. I think that this is, maybe I could have gone back and said, what's the difference between high performers and, and everybody else? And it could have just been this, is that yeah. high performers are willing to be uncomfortable for a purpose. Mm-hmm. I don't think suffering you know, we can go back to Viktor Frankl's uh, man's search for meaning. Uh, I don't think suffering for no reason is a good thing. I think that suffering with a purpose, if it's getting you closer to something that's meaningful and important to you is really the path forward. And it's not that everything has to be hard and arduous and you always have to be pushing the rock up the hill. But the truth is, is that growth happens at the edge of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And there's one of those cliches. We could put that on a, mm-hmm. like a piece of driftwood and then hang it on a wall and it would look perfect. <laughs> but it's, it's true, right? If we think about, and I often come back to physical skills or strength building because uh, athletes understand the mechanics of that. They've been lifting for a long time, most of these athletes. And so when you say, okay, well, well in order to get stronger, you have to get to that edge of failure, right? You have to put more weight on the bar than you did a week ago because the weight that you used last week, your body's now comfortable with. Oh yeah, yeah, I get it. And the same thing is true with any skill for thinking about something you've perfected, doing that 99 times out of a hundred times correct. That's not learning. That's just reinforcing a pattern that you already have or reactivating the pattern that you already have. You're not growing because failure is the thing that actually activates the growth. 
It's the thing that neurochemically tells us, hey, this thing needs to change in our brain. These new wires need to be solidified. And so I think the ability, if we're looking at both practice and training, Mm -hmm. you can't grow unless you're uncomfortable. And then the truth about peak performance is that at some point you're going to run into pressure. And so then the performance side of things, right? It it may be not preseason, maybe not regular season, but certainly the the hope is to get to the playoffs or it's to get to the national championship or whatever your, the pinnacle of your, your performance domain is. And then there's going to be pressure and that's going to be uncomfortable, (laughs) right? Because we're going to care deeply about an outcome and it's going to be uncertain (laughs) and uncertainty is really uncomfortable. And so our ability to expose ourselves in training and then in other aspects of our life to discomfort, to develop the capacity to go, you know what, this doesn't feel very good, but I can smile and I can actually continue to move forward. I can move through this. I think that becomes a universal skill that's going to facilitate the growth and performance side of things really meaningfully. So suffering through or smiling through the suffering, <laughs> I think is what, what you originally said. I think that's so important. Um, I love this quote by Eleanor Roosevelt. And she said something like, if you, if you do something every day, that's just a little bit scary that you um, do what you're intended to do in this world and you live your purpose. And I think it's very similar. You know, I'm thinking about discomfort uh, in training, um, as a marathoner, it's like, oh man, I can think of all the 20 mile runs that I went on that were really hard. <laughs> um, but also I'm thinking about in business that it's like doing something just uncomfortable every single day helps you make the impact. It helps you reach more people. It helps you get out there with your message, right? And it's really easy just to sit and do nothing. Yeah, I think that we live in a world now where it's really easy to not be uncomfortable. In fact, a lot of things are designed for convenience. And so we now have sort of the, these two tides that clash together, where if I want to grow and invest in my purpose, if I want to do something meaningful, right? Often, almost always, I'm going to go with 99.9% is going to require us to push the edge of tolerable discomfort and then continue to allow that, that comfort zone to expand. But we're also in a world now where we don't really have to do that as often if we don't want to. And so high performers are exposing themselves to that on purpose. And I think one of the big challenges for people who aspire to be high performers, masters of their craft, is that they want it, but they're not always honest with themselves about what they're willing to do to get it. Hmm. The truth is, and we can point to a lot of experts in a lot of domains Hmm. who sacrificed a lot of stuff, relationships, Hmm. a regular life, all these things for the sake of their craft. And I'm not putting a value judgment on it, right? Yeah. It's, it's simply a choice. But a lot of us, if you said like, do you want to have a happy, healthy marriage? And do you want to have uh, kids that you're raising? And then do you also want to be the 0.00001% in your, your field? So yeah, I want it all. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I don't think we can have it all, right? There's only 24 hours in a day. And so mm-hmm. being willing to say, I'm willing to push this boundary. I'm willing to grow over here and invest my time and effort knowing that I don't have unlimited energy and I don't have unlimited time. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, that's something that we probably don't do a great job of talking about within the context of sport, but certainly I think we should do a better job of it in the world of mental performance because uh, nothing in life is free. And to become a master, I think it costs something. Yeah. 
Well, you, whenever you say yes to something, you're really saying no to something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you said something when we were talking about smiling through the discomfort that caught my attention. And you said failure is the thing that activates the growth. What is your definition of failure? I think that failure, I like to define it pretty broadly because it takes a little bit of the sting out of it. Because we usually think of failure as the the big stuff that we wanted and didn't get. And yeah. uh, for me, it's anytime uh, I have a, a desired state, right? I have a, a, a big goal or a little goal, and then I, it doesn't turn out that way. So it could mm-hmm. be something as mundane as like spilling the coffee in the morning mm-hmm. and being like, well, I wanted a cup full of coffee and I ended up without one. Yeah. Right? But it also could be applying for a job. It could be going after a state title. It could be all of these things that are imbued with a lot more meaning than the, the cup of coffee that tipped over that you didn't get, or you didn't manifest the exact vision of that you wanted. I think that's a really awesome definition. And it's interesting how uh, there's a, such wide responses to that question. You know, I remember one person on the podcast said, well, failure is anytime I'm just not being myself mm. or failure is um, anytime I really didn't go for it. And I like the idea of like intentionally defining failure on your terms and uh, w- you know, I don't think we talk about that enough, uh, that we just kind of define it maybe the way society thinks we should, which is anytime I set a goal and I didn't make it, reach it, or you know, anytime I didn't like make my own expectations uh, or reach my own expectations. So uh, thank you, Pete. Yeah. I also um, saw that you did some writing on grace under pressure, and we've been talking a little bit about pressure today and how we can all experience pressure. Tell us what it means to have grace under pressure. I think grace under pressure is something that is not innate, right? I don't think we're born with it. I think it's something that's trained. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a lot of different ways to train that. And some of what we talked about in terms of systematically exposing ourselves to discomfort so that we can get better at dealing with being outside of our comfort zone Mm -hmm. allows us to have grace under pressure. Mm. But Pressure is kind of a twofold. And I, I like to ask performers how they define pressure, how they feel it, where they feel it. Uh, yeah, but I'll, I'll go with my definition here, which is okay. uh, perceived stakes, whether they're real or imagined okay. Okay. and uh, high level uncertainty about the outcome. So those are two of the, the components, but what that does to me, what pressure actually feels like is uh, a dilation, a constriction of time. So time feels like it gets tighter. Uh, And there suddenly becomes a sense of urgency, which means that my rhythm speeds up, which means that there are physiological effects to what happens in my body. And that Mm -hmm. then feeds into my mind and we now have a feedback loop. And so when everything starts to speed up, when my body gets tight, when my heart rate goes up, when all of a sudden, uh, because my central nervous system is activated, my amygdala is more likely to see things as threat and then have me respond Mm -hmm. in that fight or flight way. Mm-hmm. grace under pressure is being able to let my shoulders drop just a might like a millimeter. Mm. It's the ability to exhale just a little bit longer. And what that does is it opens up the capacity to engage in skillful action. Yeah. Right? So I'm no longer stuck in a reactive and uh, I'm trying to think it was the conscious leadership group and Jim Detmer that talk about above the line and below the line. So oh, like yeah. proactive and reactive. Yeah. And, So moving yourself under stress 
under pressure, under that fight or flight experience from a reactive mode where I'm going to act out of survival and safety, uh, which Mm -hmm. is generally not my best self (laughs) and move myself into a place where I can, even if this is all happening in a split second, access the skills that I've developed, the patterns and habits that are actually going to allow me to stay task focused and really operate at a high level. And so it's, it's all of those things. And it looks a lot different depending on the demand. So grace under pressure for me when I'm walking my dog and she loses it when she sees a squirrel is, <laughs> is way different than what it looks like for a Navy SEAL to stay graceful under pressure when there's bullets whizzing over their head. Yeah. But I think the, the broad strokes end up being the same, which is the ability to really engage in skillful action uh, when everything around us, the context is demanding that we, we fight for ourselves and we engage in survival. I had um, an elite athlete tell me who was competing at the Olympic trials this summer said that at the trials, she felt like her body, her mind was really fast and her body was really slow. And I thought, isn't that great awareness of Mm -hmm. like what pressure can feel like, like your mind is racing, but your body maybe is, is not quite, you know, it's maybe even slower than typical. Yeah. Uh Mm -hmm. And the, I love the language that people put to, as part of why I love what I do, is the understanding the language they put to things that aren't really captured in language. Mm. And so what's going on in your body? And people are like, oh, I, it's kind of like, it feels-ish. And so for her to be able to use such pointed language is really a crystal clear yeah. window into what the experience yeah. was like. Yeah, yeah, incredible awareness. You said something that... Um, being like strategic with our discomfort helps us have grace under pressure or doing it in practice or in preparation. Um, Can you give us some examples of what you mean? I'll start with uh, some silly stuff and then we'll work our way up. I, uh, I once did a extra credit assignment called suffer club. (laughs) That's awesome. I asked students in uh, (laughs) A mental training for peak performance class. I asked them to pick one thing that was going to be tolerable, but uncomfortable and yep. to do that for a week and to journal on it. And then there was a reflection at the end where you had to summarize the experience and how you thought those skills would transfer over to what was really meaningful. Okay. So some students gave up social media for a week, uh, and others didn't hit snooze when their alarm went off. And as a former student, that's, uh, it's not easy. No, it's not. It's still not Uh, easy for me. (laughs) Cold water exposure. Uh, So for me, that was my choice. I, uh, I don't like cold water. It's very unpleasant. And so uh, I initially started with like, I'll do like 30 seconds at the end of my shower. And I had a student raise her hand and go, "Mm -mm, you owe us the whole shower. And I went, so for a week I went, and again, this is, I, I recognize the privilege and the inherent here. Like there are a lot of people who go without hot showers and that's just the way of living. Uh, for me though, this was an opportunity to practice systematic discomfort in a low stakes environment. And what ends up happening, and I think this is part of the phenomenon around like, uh, the Wim Hof cold exposure stuff, the ice baths is that you climb in and I don't know a whole lot of people who go, wow, that was just so tasty and delicious. No, but I think what ends up happening is if you can approach it with a particular mindset, you climb into an ice bath, you get a cold shower or whatever it is, that's really uncomfortable for you. And you go, you know what? That wasn't so bad. And by the end of the week, I had a lot of students say, you know, 
I'd get really contracted. I wanted to reach for my phone and the social media and I, I couldn't do it. And I got frustrated or I got hot or I got, I felt something. Mm-hmm. And it came with a set of thoughts and thought patterns because they were built into mm-hmm. this habit. Mm-hmm. By the end, there was a little bit more looseness. And so I'm in the shower and I'm like tight and I can feel myself just relax just a little bit. Still unpleasant, but I'm relaxing into that discomfort. I'm smiling through that suffering. And I think this becomes a generalizable skill. And so what does that look like then if we start to transport that into domain-specific work? Mm -hmm. I think that conditioning is another really great place to do this, right? So for some athletes, it's going to be pushing harder than they thought, right? But for other athletes, and I think this is true for most high performers, the magic is in doing less. It's Mm. not doing more. It's about quality and -hmm. intensity, not necessarily effort, but intensity of presence, intensity of really what you're trying to accomplish and how deeply can you bring yourself to it? And then not adding, cause this can start to be really lazy. I'm going to do a hundred extra jump shots, right? But if I'm doing a hundred extra mediocre jump shots, it looks like I'm doing the work and I'm pushing the comfort zone, but I'm not really. And so for some athletes about increasing the intensity, whether that's demanding that you're a little bit higher quality of attention, a little bit more present. Sometimes it's the discomfort of doing less and then just being like, you know what, I guess it's all right. And we see this a lot with athletes who are tapering after they've trained for a big race. Oh yeah. Like the energy is bouncing around in their bodies and they're like, I need Mm -hmm. to do something with it because I'm losing my fitness. I'm losing my fitness. I know all all of the, the science in the, the world of physiology points to the fact that tapering allows you to excel when it's race time. And a lot of runners are like, you know, I know the science, but what I feel is So it's being able to sit with that discomfort and not let it run you. And so uh, for some folks, it's actually, you know, meditation might be the the discomfort. It's doing nothing other than being. And then you're like, well, yeah, I can control my breath while I'm meditating. Well, could you just pay attention to your breathing instead of changing the way you breathe? Ugh. Can you not play whack-a-mole with all your thoughts, but can you just like watch the thoughts as they come through? And that becomes the really uncomfortable aspect. And so it becomes a a really a one size fits one question when it comes down to it. But I find that most athletes and performers, when they can get quiet and get honest, Mm -hmm. they know where that growth edge is. They know what the rate limiter is that's really holding them back. And I think that our ability to excel is directly connected to our willingness to look at the stuff that other people aren't willing to look at and address the things that other people aren't willing to address. Awesome, Pete. Really insightful. I'm thinking about what should we do with this idea of the suffer club? And what do you think the real message for everyone listening is? I, uh, I went and looked to see if there was a hashtag. Unfortunately, there already is. And so I don't <laughs> want to hijack somebody's uh, you know, hashtag. But I think the... Um, the message at the heart of it is one, you, you have to start with reality and be honest. And if you can't be honest with yourself, uh, then I think nothing else really goes. Uh, and I'm saying this out loud as a reminder to myself, just like I'm trying to remind others mm-hmm. because suffering without purpose is just a, a recipe for more suffering. And so once we're clear and honest, I think it's mm-hmm. choosing to put ourselves in uncomfortable positions with purpose. And then when we're in those uncomfortable positions, 
it's just paying attention without judgment to what happens and noticing what's productive and what isn't. Yeah. Not what is good or what is bad, but like what's getting us closer to the thing we want and what's moving us further away. Because mm-hmm. getting really attached to good stuff, right? we could use the opposite, right? The hot shower. If I spend 45 minutes uh, using up all the hot water, like, yeah, it feels good, but it might not actually be productive. It's not necessarily moving me closer to the things that I want to be doing or uh, enabling me to then go uh, operate at the highest level. And so it's really about, am I getting closer to the person I want to be? Am I getting closer to the things I want to accomplish? Or am I getting further away? And so if you can expand your zone of tolerable discomfort, what you can tolerate while staying focused on the task at hand, I think that ends up being a skill that applies to like everything in life. Hard conversations with significant others, right? <laughs> getting feedback from your boss, yeah. uh, being able to walk your dog while there are squirrels and dogs everywhere. <laughs> Applying for a job, like working with a Blackhawks, right? And the first time you stepped on the ice with a team, I think all of those things are uncomfortable, you know, when we're put in new situations. So I love this idea. And I was also thinking about the time that I was the most fit for a marathon um, was the time where my tapering started three weeks or so before the marathon. And I almost changed um, the marathon I, I was going to run because I didn't want to stop training. I was so nervous about um, tapering and my mind was going crazy. <laughs> like I had to actually have to, had to remember this one conversation I had with my friend, Jim, who was my running partner at the time. It's just like, you know, he had to talk me down from felt like a wall. And it's so interesting when you're just so used to doing something every day and then you try to do it a little bit differently. Uh, definitely uncomfortable. Well, and the, the not doing, I yeah. think, right? Because if I'm training, even if I'm overtraining, even if I know I'm overtraining, at least I'm doing something. Yeah. And, and so I've tried to reframe recovery as an active process. You're not laying on the couch. You're actively taking yourself down below baseline. You're getting your muscles softer and more relaxed. You're bringing your nervous system down. You're storing all that energy up. And that yeah. way, athletes don't feel like they're being lazy. Right. Mm-hmm. They're like, and, and I look, look, if you can recover like a professional, right. If you could be 0.0001% recover, that's then setting the bar for how hard and how fast and how intense you can be when it's time to turn it on. If you're kind of stuck in that middle gear, mm-hmm. right, you can only swing it back the other direction as far as you're willing to swing it one way. And so I think that trying to reframe it that way uh, can get some of the competitive folks who are like, Oh, I'm going to out recover the crap out of you. Then I got this, <laughs> but like it's it. hard because it's, it's inaction and inaction feels mm-hmm. like letting go and letting go is very hard for us. It is very hard for us. One of the most difficult things I think is to let go. So one of the podcast episodes I saw that you did Pete, that was super interesting to me was about three layers of mindset and you had action and reaction on the top and then kind of in the middle you had um, mental patterns and then the and perspectives and I think maybe the bottom was lens I would love for you to kind of tell us a little bit about that concept before we close out today I think one of the the joys of the the podcast was being able to push myself a little bit to break things like mindset down yeah. Uh, and, and it's my definition. And so I don't want to suggest that anybody else's definition is wrong. But for me, when I think about what a mindset is, 
we we generally flatten it and go well it's like a attitude or it's what you do most of the time and i think that sure starting with what's unseen or most unseen and also i think hardest to change is that lens or perspective right the you know we can really think about it like putting on different colored glasses and how that would change literally everything about what we perceive with our eyes and what's yeah. interesting about the brain is that it gets really used to whatever circumstances you're given and so you can actually put glasses on that are totally filtering out a ton of what you can see. And then you just kind of get used to it, not realize that anything was weird. Mm -hmm. And our lens is a lot like that when it comes to what goes on between our ears. Uh, and so we can think about optimism versus pessimism. What thoughts am I filtering in and starting to notice with my attention or what is bubbling up from awareness? And oftentimes we go like, well, those are just the thoughts that showed up. And we don't really recognize that we have some agency in how that filter works or how we can change that filter. If we don't choose to affect that though, what that does is it starts to facilitate patterns and we do patterns of mental activation, whether it's thoughts, feelings, responding to physical sensations. We do all of these because they're getting us something. And the question is, is it getting us what we want or is it getting us what feels good? Yeah. And a lot of times it's getting rid of an uncomfortable feeling or it's giving us some pleasure or we're fantasizing about something or we're just worrying about something we don't have any control over, but it feels good because at least we're worrying, right? We can't do anything else about it. And then this feeds, those patterns then feed the actions and reactions. So what do I choose to do? And then how do I choose to respond? And those are the visible things. If I'm watching from you know, the observation deck and I'm looking at a bunch of athletes while they're on the court or on the ice or running around the track, I can see their actions and reactions, but I don't really have a lot of access to everything else. But in the work that we do, we can start to unpack what that looks like for a particular athlete so that we could understand what does a growth mindset actually look like across each of these three domains? What does resilience look like? And why is it valuable to uh, cultivate a mindset that's resilient? Right? And thinking about, well, how does a lens need to shift to enable resilience at the behavior? And it's really a set of behaviors. Uh, what does resilience look like in between our ears in terms of those mental patterns? And by separating it into those three categories, it gave me places to assess and ask questions around. And then it gave me a way of articulating what we were trying to accomplish when we were building a mindset so that athletes felt a little bit more solid around like stuff that just tends not to be very solid in between our ears. Yeah, I love it. So Pete, where can people learn more about your work? Listen to your podcast. Tell us how we can follow along with what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, the podcast is called The Mental Training Lab. Uh, and it's, uh, it's just so much fun. And really, one of the reasons why I, I started a podcast uh, was because I'd listened to yours. And you sound like you're always having so much fun. Yeah. Uh, and, and the conversations are always so tasty. And so for me, it was the opportunity to uh, get a little bit more of that in my life. So I guess what I'm trying to say is thank you. Uh, uh, you can also find me on Instagram at all day dr period k. So all day doctor k. That's uh, awesome. I like to uh, make sure that I'm not taking Instagram too seriously, and so with a ridiculous name like that, I at least giggle every time I open the app. Uh, and then uh, my website is uh, drkcoaching.com. Drkcoaching.com. So. Uh, if you hop on the website, if you have questions about anything we talked about or just want to reach out and connect, there's a, there's a form that you can fill out and it'll shoot me an email. Uh, and yeah, the other spots, uh, I'm looking forward to releasing some more podcast episodes soon and 
Uh, I'd love to have you on the show if you're willing. You know it. Yes, there it is. Of course. It's now, it's, it's now official because it's been, it's on record. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, those are, those are the three main ways people can track me down and connect. Awesome, Pete. I had so much fun. And I found our conversation incredibly insightful. I most appreciated what we talked about, actually just smiling through the suffering and the importance of like exposing ourselves to discomfort is really important. Um, Love your idea of the Suffer Club. I'm going to encourage everyone to (laughs) try that for a week. What is uh, maybe a behavior or something you'd like to change? Um, that maybe isn't serving you, or if you changed, it would really help you grow or learn or step into your, your, your potential. I liked that you said failure is um, the thing that we need to, or a thing that we need to activate our growth. And I love the idea of like grace under pressure and what we discussed today. Uh, So good. Uh, What final thoughts do you have for people as we wrap up? I mean, you just, you did a great job of putting a bow on everything. I, um, I think the, the last thing I would leave people with is that, uh, this is, these are all skills that we can improve. Uh, and so when it comes down to it, we have all these buttons and levers on our control panel, and we generally ignore a whole big section of that, that could mm-hmm. enable us to live happier and healthier and more meaningful lives. And so, uh, in whatever way that looks like, whether it's working with somebody like us or just investing in yourself, not from a traditional self-improvement lens, right? But really from a place of being more congruent with your values, uh, being able to live a more meaningful life, that, that there's things that we can work on every day that allow us to do that. That's uh, that's my what I want to push out into the universe today. Thank you, Pete. I'm so grateful for your time and your energy. And thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Sandra. It was a blast. Way to go for finishing another episode of the High Performance Mindset. I'm giving you a virtual fist pump. Holy cow, did that go by way too fast for anyone else? If you want more, remember to subscribe and you can head over to Dr. Sindra for show notes and to join my exclusive community for high performers where you get access to videos about mindset each week. So again, you can head over to Dr. Sindra. that's D-R-C-I-N-D-R-A dot com. See you next week.